Welcome to the Global Math Department. My name is Lee Natero, and I'll be your host tonight. Tonight, we're going to hear from Eric Lee and Sarah Furman. Before we begin our session, I'd like to tell you a little bit more about the Global Math Department. The Global Math Department is an organization that is run entirely by volunteers. To keep the free, high-quality PD, we need webinar speakers, webinar hosts, and writers for our newsletter. Newsletter writers share about an area of math or math teaching that resonates with them or discusses recent math blogs that help teachers reflect on their practice. If you'd like to volunteer or know someone who would be great in any of these areas, please have them email us at globalmathdepartment at gmail.com or have them reach out to us on Twitter. Before I introduce our speakers, I'd like to explain how our webinars work. Our webinars are recorded and are available about 24 hours after the meeting ends. To view the recording, you can use the same link you used to get here tonight. The Global Math Department community prides itself on being friendly and supportive. The chat room is available for topical and general conversation throughout the meeting. And if the chatter gets busy, I'll be sure to catch your questions for the presenters to be addressed at the end of the presentation. If you haven't already done so, please introduce yourself in the chat, telling us what you teach, where you teach, and what your Twitter handle is, if you have one. Great to see people from all around the world tonight. Um, as I mentioned, our webinar speakers are Eric Lee and Sarah Furman, and they'll be sharing on the topic, the Rosenthal Prize. Eric is a 712 Mathematics Support Consultant for the Halifax Regional Center for Education in Halifax, Nova Scotia. He shares his, thought, his thoughts on mathematics at pbbmath.webly.com. He's also the president of the Nova Scotia Mathematics Teachers Association and NCTM affiliate organization. Sarah Furman has a BA from University of Michigan with a double major in mathematics and English and a master's in curriculum and in teaching from Michigan State University. She's in her 23rd year of teaching at Inland Lakes High School where she has taught both math and English. She's a Desmos, Desmos Fellow Cohort 4 and a member of the Open Middle team where she tests and edits content for openmiddle.com, a free mathematics resources for teachers. She has presented multiple times at state, regional, and district level conferences, and she is a member of the Rosenthal Prize Institute in 2022 in collaboration with the National Muse Mathematics Museum. She has worked to build relationships with her students and continues to implement the strategies outlined in Peter Liljedahl's Building Thinking Classrooms in Mathematics within her own classroom. I welcome both Sarah and Eric. Hey, thank you for the introductions, uh, Lee. Um, so we're going to talk tonight about the, the Rosenthal Prize and the, uh, the, the Rosenthal Summer Institute and all of the lessons that are out there are the previous prize winning uh, Rosenthal Prizes. Uh, Sarah and I met each other uh, last summer where we were both uh, part of the first cohort of the Rosenthal Summer Math Institute, uh, which we'll be talking about later and how you might be able to uh, apply for that and to, to be able to um, to attend that uh, institute in New York City at the National Museum of Mathematics. Uh, Sarah, do you wanna say hi? Hi everybody, thanks for coming. Great, so tonight, like I mentioned, what we're gonna talk about, I'm gonna talk about, I'll give you a, a quick background about the 
MoMaths this is a short name for the National Museum of Mathematics in New York City. And a little bit of background about what the Rosenthal Prize is and how you might go about uh, applying for it. We're going to talk about the collection of lessons that's been accumulated that is shared by the Museum of Mathematics for teachers to use in their own classrooms. Uh, then we're going to take a little bit of time to actually try out one of the previous prize winning lessons. Um, and then after that, we'll have a chance for some questions, and then we'll talk about uh, applying, how you go through the process of applying for the Rosenthal Prize. And then at the end, uh, at the, the last part of the, the night, we'll talk about the Summer Mathematics Institute and how to apply for that as well. The applications for both of those are not, uh, are not arduous or complicated, um, so we really do, do encourage people to apply. I never thought I would get accepted to the Summer Math Institute. In fact, I think just about everyone that was there uh, in the summer were kind of surprised they were chosen and so sort of pleasantly surprised that uh, didn't think they had much of a chance to get it selected and yet there they were so it's a really nice opportunity to get uh, to to participate in something like that uh, as always uh, i'm just going to keep uh, presenting if uh, you have any questions during the night please type them into the chat uh, if i'm uh, if I'm uh, chatting, uh, then Sarah might answer your question, or if Sarah's chatting, she might, I might answer your question. So uh, it's great to see you all. So a little bit of background about uh, MoMath and the Rosenthal Prize. So the National Museum of Mathematics uh, just actually celebrated their 10th anniversary. So they've been a, a physical museum in, uh, in, in Manhattan and in New York City um, for, for a little bit over 10 years now. Uh, the actual museum started before that. They uh, they started as a, as an idea, and they had a uh, a traveling roadshow, I guess you would say. That uh, they had a bunch of exhibits that they took on tour through uh, science and math museums or science museums around the country, uh, and put together a bunch of exhibits that they thought would would um, bring out the beauty and joy of mathematics and to change the people's conception of mathematics from sort of the computational drudgery to something that's interesting and curious and uh, engaging. Um, and so that's what they did when they, they established the, the, uh, the physical museum in New York City in uh, 2012. Uh, so you can see there on the, the left, there's a picture of sort of the iconic square wheel tricycle. It's uh, right, in the, right in the lobby as you enter. It's kind of a, it's the, it's the iconic thing you do when you visit the museum. You'll notice there's someone there in a uh, yellow t-shirt. Um, the, the nice thing about the museum is it's staffed with lots of like mathematics graduate students that are there to engage you in the mathematics and to prompt you with questions, uh, thinking questions about the mathematics you're seeing and to get you to think a little bit more deeply uh, at whatever level you're at. So you'll notice lots of kids are riding bicycles and they'll, they'll ask specific questions to students, to, to, to younger people. Uh, and when an adult gets up there, they might challenge them with a little bit uh, more deeper thinking. So there's lots of differentiation at the museum that lets you to engage in the mathematics you see there at whatever level of comfort that you have with mathematics. So it's a real sort of outreach to people to, to uh, think about uh, ways to uh, inspire curiosity about mathematics and to get people to thinking about uh, the, the beauty and joy of mathematics. And, and it's very engaging. There's lots of exhibits. It's actually on two floors. That's the main floor. And then downstairs, there's additional exhibits. There's an interactive floor with lots of programs running on it that you engage with. 
Uh, and there's also some, uh, some uh, rooms and uh, classrooms and things downstairs as well. Uh, the picture on the right is actually a picture of Ralph Pantosi, uh, who is one of the winners of the Rosenthal Prize, I believe it was 2014. Uh, he's on the right, and the person on the left is Sal Rosenthal. He's actually the person that has, has uh, set up a fund to, uh, to, uh, for the funds for the prize money that is associated with the prize. So not only uh, is the prize the prizes associated with there's like a, a $25,000 prize for the winning lesson um, each year. Um, so I think we'll we'll move on from there. Um, so I think Sarah's going to talk to this one. These are so the the prize is for an innovative mathematics lesson. So these are sort of the things that they're looking for in that sort of lesson. So when we were at the museum, um, we bounced between the exhibits and and then looking at the lessons that had previously won uh, the Rosenthal Prize. And there was just a lot of parallels. And what they're looking for is something that's very, that's unique. And even if it's an activity that you have seen done before, um, it's about how you package it and present it to your students in an inspiring and unique way. And so, and one of the examples we talked about when we were out there was like the Barbie bungee lesson. And if you say Barbie bungee, people know what lesson you're talking about, but people have put their own spin on it. Well, the idea is, is that we're creating lessons that are unique and that have that unique um, spin on them, that they are inspiring and engaging, that kids low floor, high ceiling, that there's an entry point for all your students to get into it and that there's a ceiling on it that's pretty high so that, um, you know, there's more math to be done than, than just one level, um, that you can get to that rigorous level, that it's connected to content. Um, and let's see, you know, does it inspire kids and teachers to want to do more with math? Um, is it engaging. I mean, are the kids jumping into it? The other thing we talked about uh, is how it has to be replicable. Um, you can't have a ton of expensive equipment or huge technology ass. It's got to be something that a classroom teacher who is pressed for time can look through and put together in a 45 to 50 minute lesson. And um, so the library of lessons of previous winners and you know, there's these lessons that are available to teachers. So we wanted to talk about that, but also um, to get teachers thinking about if you have, if you're sitting on a really good idea, um, the window is open to apply and it's a $25,000 prize. And I think they gave out 10 grand and Eric, I'm assuming you'll jump in if I'm, um, but they do give out monetary prizes after the 25,000, I think last year they did 25,000, 10,000. I, I think there's like four prizes last year. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we spent a lot of time at the Institute talking about it, these innovative math lessons and what was there. And then also to prompt us to think about getting the word out to teachers that um, there are a lot of great lessons in the hands of educators across the world and they want you to apply so that these lessons that maybe live wherever you live 
we all know that they're there and we can start using them with kids. So Eric, did I miss anything? No, that sounds great. Okay. If you guys have questions, feel free to uh, drop them in the chat. And I think Eric, the plan is we're going to look at one lesson in depth. And then at the end, we're going to talk about um, tips to apply and also um, what the application involves. If you think you've got a really good lesson. So I just wanted to mention uh, some of you may have seen if you're on Twitter the, or uh, follow uh, Dan Finkel. Uh, he actually was uh, a winner this year. He was uh, one of the, he wasn't the, the grand prize winner. He was one of the runner-up winners. But uh, uh, if you uh, if you follow his newsletter, I think his most recent newsletter talks uh, has a description of of the prize lesson that he submitted for the for the Rosenthal Prize and the one that uh, that was uh, one of the winners this year. Uh, there's a whole thing. This this actually prize has actually been going on longer than the physical museum existed. So there's actually 10 plus years of prize winning lessons, uh, and this this being one of them. This one one isn't on the uh, Museum of Mathematics website yet, but it, it will be shortly, uh, as well as all of the other winners from this year. I think it was just like two weeks ago. I think February 8th or February 10th was the. Uh, I think February 8th was the uh, award ceremony at the National Museum of Mathematics. For, for this year's prizes. So speaking of, of those uh, prize winning lessons, uh, I am going to put this link in the, the chat as well. This is the link to the Museum of Mathematics website where you can find uh, a list of all the prize winning lessons. So I'm actually going to uh, change my screen here and uh, share uh, the screen, uh, the, the link that I just showed you. See if this works. So this is the, the Rosenthal Prize page on the Museum of Mathematics website. You can see there's a big red button here for applying for the Rosenthal Prize. Uh, the, the window is open now, so you can, uh, you can apply anytime. Uh, and then the application window closes on May 15th. So there's lots of times to think about what a lesson that you might want to submit uh, will be. Also, if you continue scrolling down, you'll see some pictures of previous lesson uh, winners. You might notice uh, uh, David Porras on the left side there. If you're, uh, if you're interested in Mathagon Polypad, you've probably seen uh, videos from, from him. Uh, and if you continue scrolling down, you'll see a list of all the winning lessons from, from previous years. So there's, there's quite a collection of lessons. Um, and, and we're going to try one out here shortly. Um, so what we're going to do is I thought instead of just talking about uh, all those lessons. I'm going to go back to our slides here. Um, we'll actually give one a try. Uh, and so the one we're going to try, we're going to go through about 15 minutes or so, is the, the dice auction. So the dice auction is a lesson that was submitted by Nat Banting. He's a teacher from Saskatchewan. It was the 2019 prize winning lesson. And it's about uh, a probability. So it's sort of an introductory probability lesson. Uh, I think Nat Benting was the first Canadian winner of the, the Rosenthal Prize. Um, and in this lesson, he's talking about probability. But one thing that's nice about some of these lessons where uh, it can be used at lots of different grade levels, uh, it, can, it can be an introduction to probability at a very uh, young grade level, or it can be a review of probability before you get into more complex probability, probability um, topics later on. So I've done this with 
with uh, high school students uh, as a review of probability before we got into uh, more complex topics around probability. So to start off this lesson, I thought we'd start with a, a would you rather question here. So if we were to roll 20, uh, a pair of dice 20 times, which would you rather have? Would you rather have a dollar each time a double was rolled? So two threes, two twos, two fives, two sixes, or would you rather have a dollar each time both dice are either a four, five, or six? So it could be five, six, it could be four, six, it could be five, five, a double that would have won you on the other one. So uh, think about it for a second. I'd, I'd like you to actually put your, uh, your answer into the chat box. Which would you rather pick, doubles or four, five, six, uh, as far as uh, uh, earning money from 20 rolls of a dice? So I see a lot of uh, people saying four, five, six, and this is what I found with uh, older students that have a little bit more intuition about probability, uh, often say four, five, or six. Um, uh, for students that aren't sure, this is exactly the information that you need to know in order to be able to access um, the dice auction lesson. So I often start with this, uh, would you rather, as an opening question before jumping into the, to the, to the actual auction itself. Uh, and show students a uh, two dice grid like this, showing you all the 36 different possibilities that are possible when rolling two dice. So then we can actually have a share a tool with students that they can use to make uh, decisions between two different uh, items. Because what we're doing in the dice auction lesson is we're actually auctioning off these opportunities of dice rolls. And students have to have some sort of um, entry to be able to say, which one is a better value? Which one of those two options would be worth more money if I was to bid on them? So we can say, if we were to look at the doubles, well, on that, on that slide, we can see that there's actually six different ways of getting doubles out of that 36. So a one in six chance, or six out of 36 wage, which is a one in six chance. So if we were to actually roll 20 times, what would the, how many times would we expect doubles to show up? So you can, you can answer that question in the chat. If you think about it, if we rolled 20 times, how many of those 20 rolls would you expect to be doubles? Somewhere around uh, what number? All right, somewhere around three, right? One six times 20. So it's a little bit more than three. It's like three and a third is what we'd expect. Um, but because we're only rolling 20 times, that's a very small sample space. So it might be, two times or four times or even zero times. We, we don't, because it's such a small space, we'd expect it to be around three, but we're not guaranteeing it's three. Uh, the probability of rolling four, five or six, if we can see it's, it's one fourth of the quadrant of uh, one corner of this, of this grid right there. Uh, the nine different ways on the bottom right corner of this, this array of dice are all the ways you can get four, five or six on either dice. This one is a little easier to compute, right? Nine out of 36 ways is equal to one fourth, 25% chance. So if you were to roll about 20 times, we'd expect to get about five rolls of, of four, five or six. So everyone who said four, five or six, you're definitely gonna, you, you'd expect to make money more often with four, five or six, but you're not guaranteed. There are definitely times that 
that the doubles might end up being more. And uh, with students, I'll actually go through and we'll roll 20 dice a few times, see how many times it takes before there's actually more doubles than four or five or sixes. And it usually doesn't take too many tries because it's such a small sample space. So this is the background information that students need to be able to, to access the, the dice auction. So in the actual auction itself, there are going to be 15 different lots. And each lot is one of these probability statements about the result of a pair of dice being rolled. And if you, if you win that lot, then in the, when the 20 dice are rolled at the end, you'll, you'll get a point for your team uh, each time that that statement uh, is, is, is true. So the strategy is each team of students uh, is given a set amount of money and you have to see if, if you're gonna auction off uh, these lots, are you going to try and to bid on the really highly probable lots and probably have lots of bidding wars for those, for those really probable lots? Or maybe you'll try and get uh, less ex or less uh, probable lots uh, at a lesser price. So maybe you're gonna try and get a bunch of not very likely things, but you have so many of them, you might outnumber the team that only got one really likely thing. So like I said, at the end of the, once you've auctioned off all 15 lots, we actually roll the dice 20 times and we calculate how many, how many points each team got and you're trying to get the most points after those 20 rolls. So that's how the dice auction is run. Um, to make it a little bit more uh, engaging, you can make a, a little uh, auction paddle. Like when I did it in class, I just I hot glued a uh, index card to a popsicle stick for each group and they were able to have one person as the designated bidder for their team. Uh, I also borrowed from the student council their gavel. So we were actually able to have an actual auction gavel uh, and uh, it made it much more uh, of a, an event to, to have. Uh, during the class. Um, so here's an example, the, the double is rolled. So we actually, I used a, a Mathagon Polypad to roll the dice. Uh, I actually did, I didn't do it like this. I did it one at a time to build the suspense, but we can practice that by, by rolling and seeing. We, we practiced this roll about doubles and you notice that we actually, it ended up happening five times here. So that team would have getting, gotten five points, which is actually pretty lucky because we don't expect to be three or so. So they got more than was expected with this role. Um, and then here's the instructions for the auction itself. So each team, so this is a, how I did it. We Each team, I gave them $100 to bid with. Uh, some teachers I know actually print off uh, classroom uh, cash uh, and slice it all up. I usually just, I just have an old uh, Monopoly game and I just use a bunch of old Monopoly money uh, instead of making my own. Uh, each team has a designated bidder. Uh, they get five minutes to look over all of the lots before they start bidding. This is really important time for students to, to think about the probability of each of those things and make a strategy about which ones they want to bid for. Uh, they'll have a handout and they can make notes with their team so they can, they can talk about what they want their strategy to be. Uh, just to keep the auction rolling, we started a minimum bid of $5 and we only bid in $1 increments. Uh, otherwise, the bids could do it very long and protracted. If you thought the bids were taking too long, you could uh, up that from $1. But but usually in the heat of bidding, some uh, teams would start bidding $5 increments or $10 increments or go straight to $50. So uh, it would get exciting pretty quickly. Uh, and then there's 15 total lots. And I usually took a break after five lots and 10 lots. 
if you had smaller groups or, or a different amount of students, you might just break it in half and do a, a break halfway through. But they need some time to discuss halfway through or partway through about where they're at and if they want to change their strategy. And at the end, we roll some dice and see who's the winner. Uh, so here's a list, uh, it's a little small here, but here's a list of the 15 lots and the handout that the team members get to, to make their plan or their strategy about which ones, which of these lots they want to, to shoot for and what they think their maximum bid price might be. And then there's a picture there of the, each of the lots I, I printed off on a piece of cardstock so that I could hand it to the team so they had the physical thing of the thing they won that they exchanged their money for. Um, and, and that's really the way it works. That's the, the dice auction. It's a, it fills up a class time. It's a, it's a 45, the actual auction itself takes about 45 minutes. Uh, I usually spend about 15 minutes on the, uh, the would you rather question in the beginning to talk about, uh, probabilities to make sure that every student had, um, a set level of understanding of probability before we got going into it. Uh, doing it in groups also helps. So if students not so sure, they can they can talk to each other and and talk about the, the probability and, and things like that. What I thought we'd do is we take a minute to actually uh, try and see what an auction might look like. Uh, so we'll say that we've already completed the auction and you have got some lots and we're going to roll some dice here. So uh, we're going to uh, drop this link into the uh, the chat. Uh, let's see, I can do that. So there's the, the link in the chat. If you want to click that link and uh, you don't have to log in with Desmos, you can just type in guest if you want. Uh, and uh, and we'll, uh, we'll go through this together. So I'm going to change. Uh, my view here to be the screen. So the first screen when you get here uh, is uh, the three lots that you've won. So let's say these are the three lots you've won. So you've run lot one that says a double is rolled. We have some experience with that. We said lot, five, lot three, both numbers are greater than or equal to five. So it's not as good as the four, five, six one we saw earlier. This is just five or six. So both numbers need to be five or six. And two, the two numbers are consecutive. So one and two, or two and three, or three and four, or four and five, any roll where the two dice are consecutive numbers. So we're just gonna make a prediction here. So there's a table on the right here. In 20 rolls, about, you, you can calculate if you want to, or if you can just make a guess, about how many rolls do you think would happen if uh, if you roll that, I'm just going to put on some pacing here for now. It looks like we've got a lot of good uh, estimates coming in. I think the double is rolled and the both numbers greater than or equal to five are fairly easy ones to estimate. Uh, the two consecutive numbers, that one gets a little trickier to estimate. Um, you can calculate and remember we're looking for how many successful rolls out of 20. So how many times do you think that's gonna happen out of uh, 20? So we're not looking for the probability of success. 
We're looking for your prediction of how many times you think you're going to roll that lot out of 20 rolls. So it should be a number between 1 and 20. I'll give it one more minute here. Looks like most of you have some predictions. I'm going to open up the next slide here. And on this next slide, um, we're actually going to give this a try. So what we have here is in this Desmos slide, we have uh, 20 dice. Uh, and how you roll dice in a polypad is you actually have to take your mouse and you will drag the mice, uh, drag the mouse over all of those dice. And in the bottom left, you'll see a, a tab that says roll and you click roll and it will make a little noise and your 20 pairs of dice will roll. So now I can see my first lot was a double is rolled. So for me, you can do this on your own on your slide. I'm going to see how I did. So uh, I'm going to look at doubles first. Uh, so I'm going to use the pin here to draw my doubles. I got one there, two. I got three. Looks like I got three doubles, which actually is right about what we'd expect, right? So it's it's a uh, it's very close to what we'd expect to happen. So. Uh, both numbers are five or six. Well, the two fives, that's also both numbers are five or six. The two sixes are also both five or six. Uh, so it looks like there's four. Oh, that one is five or six too. So one, two, three, four, five, it looks like, are both numbers are five or six. And two consecutive numbers. This one often surprises me of how many, how many times it happens. Uh, three, four, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So I got two consecutive numbers eight times. So you'll all have different amounts on your own screen. So uh, if you take a look, see if any of you have, have rolled some dice. So if you want to use that ink pen, you can use the pen to, to, to write in with your mouse uh, how many times um, that you rolled that. And I'll open up the last slide here. So the last slide is how close was your prediction? So I'm going to close that. Just get rid of the, the pacing. So the last slide is. How close was your prediction? So were, did anything surprise you? Was one of those uh, more or less than you would expect to happen? Um, I'm always surprised at how often uh, two consecutive numbers happens. It seems like it's always, and I, I guess I should, I guess I should go and uh, actually calculate the probability on that one, but I, I always seem surprised by it. Um, uh, but you may have been surprised by, by one of the other ones. So I'll just give you a minute. So some of you have, uh, have responded to uh, how it happened. Um, so it looks like 
Uh, one person said doubles and consecutive numbers were what I expected, but the five, six was less than I expected. Um, yeah, it was the consecutive was same as I expected, but I was still surprised by that. Um, and I think it's nice to have this sort of response because sometimes students are uh, say, well, the probability was I should have gotten three for doubles, but I got five or something. So uh, this is a really nice way to talk about um, because 20 rolls is such a small sample size that is oftentimes where your prediction is going to be off because it is such a small sample. If we rolled 200 times, it would be much closer. Everyone would be much closer to their prediction because of that, that law of large numbers that the more, the larger the sample size is, the more likely that probability is going to be the same. So lots of opportunities to talk with that one. I'm going to stop sharing that screen. I'm going to leave that open. I'm going to go back to our slides here. I'm going to leave that open, but I'm going to go to the, the next slide here on the screen. If, if you want to continue on with the Desmos, that's fine, but I'm going to go back to the to the other slides here and talk about how this went in in the classrooms that I did it in. Uh, I know the slide is a little small, but you can see I wrote down what the result was for, for each of those auctions. The very first lot is actually that doubles lot. And so you'll see what it was bid for. And the, the whiteboard on the right is actually the, the results of that. And you'll notice the, the very first one went for $25 out of the 100. Everyone had $100. So one team spent a quarter of their money on that. Uh, and if you, if you look, you notice that uh, doubles actually was really lucky um, that in this case, there were seven doubles rolled, which is way more than the three you would expect of 20 rolls, right? So not only was it way luckier than they predicted, they got it for a steal. So that team did really well. You might notice the second team bid their entire $100 on one lot. And it wasn't that probable of a lot. Um, so they didn't do so well in this one. Uh, one of them, though, sometimes you do get really lucky. So uh, lot 11, it's the one right after the the line, the second line there. Lot 11 is both numbers are equal to less than or equal to three, which is the same as the same probability as the four, five, or six we talked about earlier. But this one is one, two, or three. So we'd expect a quarter, 25%. So we expect around five. And this time when we ran, when we when we rolled the dice, it actually happened 11 times, more than half of the times that both numbers were one, two, or three. So that team was like super lucky and it only, they only cost uh, like $25 for that one. So not, they got really lucky on that one. So, uh, so sometimes because it is a small sample size, you'll, you'll get lucky. Um, uh, another thing that we talked about when we did this is the psychology of money. Some people get really into auctions and bidding and bid way more than the, 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 the item is worth. Um, you get, it's sort of like, you know, bidding on something on eBay where you might end up spending way more money than you had anticipated just because you wanted to win. That psychology behind auctions and winning and wanting to beat the other team that's bidding against you. Uh, sometimes that's, that has an impact here as well. So sometimes this uh, it has, uh, there are some other 
conversations that come up about money and bidding and auctions that uh, you, you didn't plan on with this lesson. So I've done this lesson several times and I found that to be a really uh, fun and engaging lessons. Students remember this lesson for a long time and they remember about probability. So it's got all the hallmarks of a good Rosenthal lesson. It didn't take any materials. I just printed off some cards. Uh, I borrowed a gavel from, a, from another classroom. Uh, if you don't have a your school doesn't have a student council with a gavel, you can, you know, bring in a, you know, a, a meat tenderizer or whatever, you know, you can, you can make do with, with the things you have around the classroom. So it was, uh, and when you actually look at this lesson, all of the handouts and all of the cards are already there. You just print them off, cut them up and go. So there was very little prep with this, uh, for this lesson for me. Uh, it was easy to run. Uh, and and the students, it really made an impact with the students. So those are all things that are, are important features of a, of a good Rosenthal lesson. So I thought it was this would be a good one to do uh, together in our short time here tonight. Um, so I just want to show, so that one was probability. Here are four other lessons that I really, uh, I really think are great lessons and show a variety of the different types of lessons that are there. They're not all, uh, they're all different aspects, right? So Ralph Pantosi's winning lesson was about uh, random walks and about, um, uh, actually, Sarah, maybe you want to talk about this one. I think you've done this one with your class, right? Yeah, I did random walk um, first week of school. This is the first year I haven't taught middle school in maybe 15 years. Um, so I use random walk in the first week of school just to introduce norms and expectations in my classroom. And um, the crux of the lesson is they are flipping a penny. And if it's heads, you take one step forward. And if it's tails, you take one step back. And so their movement is dictated by the heads or the tails that they flip on the coin. And you kind of have them practice a little bit, but essentially what you have them do is they do their walking. And if everybody, I mean, theoretical probability would suggest everybody has the exact same number as heads as tails and you end up where you started. Well, it doesn't end up that way, but it then the kids walk. So they're in should show the video but they they take their steps and then they all turn 90 degrees and then they walk i had them do this outside and then we walk towards a line in the parking lot and it looks like a stats curve it's like a human you have more people around one zero and negative one and less kids around the numbers like if you had flipped eight heads in a row you'd be at eight or if you'd hit eight tails in a row, you'd be at negative eight. So it's, it's engaging, it's visual. Um, and much like Nat Banting's lesson where he took something, you know, rolling dice, but he kicked it up a notch with an auction and made it collaborative. Um, and that's the innovation piece of it. And Ralph's lesson was, again, it's flipping heads and coin, heads and tails and theoretical versus experimental. And then you throw in the, you know, taking one step forward on a number line based on what you flip and then creating, uh, you know, that the stats curve um, with human beings as a whole class was really, we all had to work together. Um, my classes loved it and they thought it was really cool. But like Eric said, you know, once you find these lessons, they're there, it's ready to go. Um, 
the handouts are there. You don't have to create a bunch of materials and it's things like coins and dice and um, it's very replicable. And that's the other piece is that, um, you know, the judges want to see something that um, people in any classroom can get into the lesson that students, regardless of their math background, can get engaged in what you're asking them to do and gain access to some math that maybe they didn't have access to. And so that's kind of the goal of the lessons. Right. Yeah. So and then so there's uh, creating color combos. That's from Tracy Jackson's lesson. Uh, and that's about uh, proportions mixing different colored uh, liquids together in different proportions to try and get different shades of color. So it's a proportions lesson. There's a Duenia Griffin's lesson about statistics. She had a, a trimathalon. So she had three different physical activities where students were, were doing these and gathering statistics about each of them and then and then plotting the, the results of those class, class activities on, a, on different types of statistical plots. And then there was uh, Patrick Honors, Honers or Honors, I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce his name correctly. This was one of the, the first um, Rosenthal Prize lessons back in, I think, 2012. Uh, and it's about sphere dressing. So you take a small styrofoam ball uh, and you, you turn it into a head and you have to design a geometric hat for the, the sphere, the sphere head. Um, so this, that's a geometry lesson. So there's all different lessons, geometry, statistics, probability, um, proportions, computations. There's, there are lessons on sort of standard junior high uh, topics. There are also lessons, there's one on recursion. That's more of a, something you wouldn't see in the standard um, lesson, but, uh, but a junior high student could do it, could understand it, right? So it doesn't have to be something that's necessarily in the common core curriculum for a junior high student, as long as it's something that a, a junior high student could participate in and understand, right? So, uh, so next slide, we're going to talk about uh, how do you go about applying for the Rosenthal Prize and, and what does it entail? Um, do you want to talk to this one, Sarah? Um, so the, the Rosenthal prize is judged in rounds. There's a first round and then there's a finalist round. The first round is very straightforward. Um, you're going to use 250 words to describe your lesson. Um, you want to paint a picture of what the lesson is trying to accomplish. It should be geared towards uh, middle grade. So they consider that to be fourth through eighth grade. Um, it's really about the lesson and not the teacher. Um, the goal of the Rosenthal Prize is to get engaging lessons in the hands of as many teachers as possible. Um, they rate the lesson against Criterion. Um, and then after everybody, I think the first deadline is in May. And after those ones, after those ones come in, they judge them and then they will select finalists. And the finalists will do a more detailed lesson plan, including a 45-minute video of you teaching the lesson at the appropriate age level. Um, you do not have to be a classroom teacher to win the Rosenthal Prize, but at some point you do need to teach the lesson to um, you know, 6th, 7th, 8th, 4th, 5th grader students so they can really see students engaging with um, your idea. Um, 
And so first round is in May. I think the finalists, I think you get notified in the fall, which gives you a lot of time to put that video together. And then the winners will be announced in February. Um, first place is 25,000. And then there's usually uh, some runner up prizes. All of the winners are flown to New York and honored at the museum. And um, the museum will pay for your travel and your hotel. Um, so um, I think that's, I, and I'm hoping if you guys have questions, you're, you're dropping them in the chat. Um, yeah. So this is a list of some of the, uh, some of the things that are off of the, the rubric that they're looking for. Um, the, the, the initial stage of an application is not a, a time intensive thing. All of them are like 250 words or less or 500 words or less. So they really uh, emphasize that you want to spend your whole 250 words talking about the lesson, not, you know, introducing yourself or, or your, the context of the students, like just talk about the lesson because you have a very short uh, amount of space to describe the lesson. Um, so it should be innovative. It should be like either, either something you've created or something you've put your own spin on. So how have you added new or important details uh, to a well-known task? I think, I think Dan Finkel's prize-winning lesson from this year, he said he didn't create that lesson. That lesson is, is an old lesson that's been around for a long time. He just added to it. He put his own spin on it and made it a bit more engaging and a little bit more easy for students to understand. Um, uh, it should be inspiring and engaging. It should be a fun activity. Uh, there should be some math content to it. Uh, typically math content that's with something that uh, a junior high teacher or a upper upper uh, elementary teacher would teach to students so they have an opportunity to teach it. I think Sarah already talked about uh, it should be ref replicable uh, and it should be, uh, they talked about connectedness. Does the activity have an impact? Is it is it something that that students would uh, would see themselves in or or be part of the 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 curriculum that they would see? And then 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 there's one thing that of course always the just the narrative is it is it well written and easy to understand? Is it clear, concise? Uh, is it free of typos and grammar and spelling errors and all those sorts of things? So. We want to take some time now just to answer some questions. If you had questions about about the um, the application process or or how to apply or the sorts of things that uh, they're looking for in a in a award winning lesson. Um, can you show us again where they would go to apply and find information that sort of thing? And when, when was the deadline again? It was like May something? May 15th is the first round. And do you know when uh, people get notified that they've gone on to the second round? You know, based on what Cindy said yesterday, I kind of feel like by September, Eric, yeah, is September that ringing right. a bell? Because um, I kind of got the impression that... Um, you would know at the beginning of the school year so that you could teach your lesson again and get that set up in a classroom. And the other thing I want to add about the prizes is, you know, um, Eric and I were both part of the Institute and we are going to speak to that here in a minute. But once we were at the museum and you really see the goal of the museum is to pull any visitor in to an exhibit and 
you know, when I walk into it, an art museum, I don't feel like I have to be an expert at art to enjoy what's going on. The math museum is the same way. I don't, it shouldn't feel like I have to be an expert mathematician to enjoy the museum. The lessons are the same idea. You want students who don't have to feel like they're the smartest mathematician ever to enjoy your lesson, be engaged in it, and take something from it. Um, so that's what was happening at the Institute is we'd go and we'd check out the museum and then we'd bounce back and look at the lessons and kind of talk about how um, the lessons were engaging, just like the exhibits at the museum were engaging. So the, uh, the, the application rules say early July is when the results from the preliminary round get, uh, are announced. So, so if you apply in May, uh, or your, the application closes in May, you should know in early July if you're moving on to the final round. And then here's the instructions. Uh, uh, I'm just going to open up the application form and take a look. So the first questions are just sort of biographical information, name, uh, email addresses, school information, where you teach, what grades you teach, uh, or other spots, uh, some professional ref or a professional reference, and then the, the, the main questions here, describe an innovative activity, appropriate for use in fourth through eighth grade. And you notice it's please answer in 250 words or less. So that gives you a very, you have to have a very quick, concise description of your, of your um, activity, uh, specific grade level, a brief essay explaining how this activity represents your teaching or math outreach philosophy. So why do you think this is a great lesson to share with other teachers? And then uh, describe: Is this activity original to you? Did you create? Did you create it? And if it if it's not, if it's from somewhere else, do you know where it came from? Sometimes a lesson might be so old you really don't know. It's just been around forever. Um, but if you know where you saw it originally, that would be helpful to the the judges as well. Imagine that another teacher were trying to implement your activity in their classroom. If they had to start from scratch, what materials would they need? So this is that replicability part of it. What materials would you need um, in order to do this in your classroom? And the last question here is, have you used the activity with fourth through eighth graders? So have you actually done this activity before? Did you just sort of come up with it, think about it, or have you actually uh, tried it out and, and done it before? So that's it. That's the whole application. So you'll notice that it's, it's not a long application. It doesn't take a long time to do it. it it'll probably take you longer to think of what's a good lesson that I want to share than to actually fill out the form uh, for the lesson. Um, Eric, are you ready to talk about the Institute? Yeah. Okay. Uh, do you All want right, me to talk about it? Why don't you start it? us off and I'll jump in. Okay. Um, so last summer was the first Rosenthal Summer Math Institute, and they had 14 educators come and spend uh, two and a half days at the museum working as a small cohort. And the goal of the Institute is for educators to dive into these lessons and then commit to taking these lessons back to their districts, their ISDs, their states, their regions, and present them to their colleagues to basically, I think the idea was is that they've given the, the, this money, prize money out for these great lessons and that they were sitting on a web page and not getting out to educators. So the goal was to bring educators in and say, 
we want you to know these are here and talk about how to use them. So what we did was um, all your travel is covered. The meals were covered. Um, we did two and a half days. Uh, we did math together. We looked at these lessons and we went through the museum, all parts of the museum. And um, we applied. I think the application is going to open up soon. We found out by June 1st if we were going or not. We went uh, late July. Um, and I, I think the other piece that I need to throw in is that, you know, being a teacher is hard. And for me, I teach at a very small rural, rural district. Um, this is my 23rd year. I needed to be around some other educators and broaden my network and get energized and inspired. Not that my colleagues aren't wonderful. They are wonderful. Um, but it's hard out there. And um, so I was looking for something to kind of, you know, just expand my network. And like Megan said in the chat, it was a blast. And the museum took excellent care of us. Um, there were evening activities. The meals were covered. Um, we had a rooftop dinner. We did a sale around the Statue of Liberty at night, um, lots of cool stuff. And so if you're thinking, there's a couple of pieces to this. You can, if you've got a great lesson, apply for the prize. If you're interested in being a part of the next cohort of educators, apply to go to the Institute. It's three days well spent. Yeah, I'd agree. And I think the, uh, it was really nice getting a tour of the museum from uh, Tim Neeson, who actually was the designer of a lot of the exhibits, to have him talk to us about how they got chosen, why they were chosen, what about those exhibits made them special, and what what brought out that 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 joy and beauty of mathematics, and how that related to the same sort of uh, things that were coming out in the lessons we were talking about. So I think there's a close uh, a close relationship between the types of experiences you have in the, the math museum uh, to the types of experiences students might have doing some of these lessons as well. Uh, so uh, this is a couple of pictures from last summer. That's um, uh, a couple of us uh, uh, in the, this is the one of the classrooms uh, in the, the bottom floor of the museum where we were. Um, uh, it was just a small group, 14 of us, plus uh, Ralph Pantosi was our facilitator who, who walked us through a bunch of the lessons. And we had, uh, it's, a, it's a really nice facility. All the walls are 100% whiteboard. So it was a really great space to collaborate and share and work with other, with other teachers. Uh, so Shirley asked, is the, student, is the institute only for middle or junior high school teachers? Uh, no, uh, I'm a high school background teacher. I think... Uh, Sarah, you were high school as well for, for this year, right? Um, so, uh, but you have to have access to junior high classrooms. So, so I teach in a spot where I can, I can be in high school and junior high classrooms. So I, I, I'm often in junior high classrooms as well. Um, but it's not just for uh, middle or junior high teachers. You can be an educator at any level uh, and apply for it. Um. Eric, we've got a question from Larissa. She says, did you say the expectation is that the lesson entirely is entirely completed within a 45 to 60 minute class period? Would it not be advised to submit a lesson that requires students to do 
work prior to the lesson. So I think the the, the expectation was that the, the main body of the lesson should be around 45 minutes, but that there's lots of opportunities for extensions. So to have those extensions or or places to go afterwards are are really great things to have. Um, but you wouldn't, I think they talked about, you wouldn't want to have like a week long unit as your submission, right? That's too much. That would be a barrier to teachers doing it in their classroom. Um, so the idea would be have the, the main focus of the lesson be sort of a day's lesson, but definitely it, it's definitely a benefit to have extensions. They say, if, if you were to do it a second day, where would you go from there? Um, but not to have it a, a long drawn out process that might inhibit that some teachers might not have that much time to devote to a single lesson, to devote uh, multiple days. It might not be as easier for teachers to be able to implement in their classrooms if it was too long. So these are, there's only four questions on the, uh, on the application for the Summer Institute. Uh, the questions for this year aren't up. These were the questions from last year. So I just put them up there uh, in case you wanted to see what sort of questions were asked. Um, very similar to the, to the questions from the, the prize. So uh, sort of like beliefs about your educational philosophy. Uh, it asks you to review one of the Rosenthal Prize lessons. So describe one that you think is a great lesson and the one that you might, might have already used in your classroom or would be interested in using. So a review of one of the lessons. Uh, what's your interest or experience in sharing uh, at conferences and uh, professional development meeting? Um, that, of course, is not a requirement uh, for selection. Um, just They're just curious to see what your experience is. And if selected, uh, you'd be asked to, um, to implement some of these lessons in your classroom or share with students and teachers in the community. And so if they want to say, what are some ways that you might do that, that you could consider doing that? based on, on your current context about where you're teaching and, and who you're teaching with. So four questions. Uh, I think it took me, I don't know how long it took you, Sarah. I, I, think, I, took, uh, I think I took two hours to actually do it. To, uh, and then I came back to it later. It was actually about this time that I heard about it last year. And I actually waited until the, the 40 Easter weekend. And so then I did it. I had a little extra time during the weekend. And well, in Canada, it's a four day Easter weekend. I don't think it is in the States. Um, that's the time that I did it. So I, I wrote all my answers out and then I sat on it and then I came back to it. I went through it with some uh, uh, to, to check for typos and make sure it was clearly written. We read it again and made some more changes and then I submitted it. So it, total time for me wasn't more than two or three hours, I think. I know about Sarah, what, what it was for you, time to, to do the application? Um, probably about that. I waited till the absolute latest minute possible. Um, so <laughs> um, and the other thing I want to add about the Institute is you also are kind of committed to kind of an ongoing commitment. So we've been meeting via Zoom maybe every other month. And there is a stipend attached at the end of everything. And I can't remember the exact dollar amount. It was uh, $750. Maybe you can, but yeah. And what the museum and Saul Rosenthal are, what they're essentially paying us for is to um, get these lessons in the hands of teachers. And so that's what we're committed to or, doing. 
And so we meet every other week or every other month and talk about how we're getting. For me, it was, uh, it was the money allowed me to register for a conference that I was able to present at. Yeah. Um, we definitely want to honor your time and it's been an hour. Uh, other questions about the prize, about the museum, about the Institute, anything you guys want to know? If you do have questions, uh, Sarah and I are both on Twitter, so you can feel free to, uh, to message us or post to share us a question on Twitter, um, or uh, that's probably the easiest way to get a hold of us. Um, so we look forward to, if you have any, uh, any questions, uh, feel free to reach out anytime and we can, uh, we can help you with any questions you have about either the uh, Summer Institute or the, uh, the Rosenthal Prize application. And the only thing I would throw in at the end is exactly what Cindy told us yesterday, which is apply for the prize yeah. and apply for the Institute. So. Yep. Thank you so much. Uh, that, that I wish I knew about this when I was <laughs> teaching at that grade level. Uh, since I'm a college person now, I can't do this, but I am going to go to the Museum of Math. I have not been there yet. Um, so I'll, I'll definitely. Actually, the winner uh, from last year was that. a college professor so that they were uh, they were a professor and they, they, they found a junior high classroom to go do their lesson in. All right, I'll have to, I'll have to think about that. I'll have to think about that, that'd be exciting. Um, so yes, thank you very much, both Eric and Sarah. Um, and thank you for everyone in attendance. Thank you for joining us. Our next webinar is March 7th and the topic is talk number to me, <laughs> mathematics and mindfulness with Christina Lincoln Moore. Have a nice evening, everyone.